for checking out this message from Springmount Church. For more information about us and what we do, visit our website, springmount.church. Why not check out all the different groups that run throughout each week in Barrow and on Walney? And join us every Sunday from 11am at Salt House Pavilion in Barrow Infernos. If you would like us as a church to pray for you, please email prayer at springmount.church or sign up on our website for monthly news straight to your inbox. So welcome this morning to either church online or to the, the select few that are gathered here this morning. Um, the other notice to announce is that next week we will have an online booking system. Um, so again, if you signed up to the newsletter, you'll get the bulletin with the link to book the, the space. That is hopefully dependent on our local lockdown situation. We know we're, we're okay at the moment to do what we're doing, but we are. it is changing every few days, as you all know, with, with, with what's going on. So hopefully next week we'll um, have the online booking. So please, please, please use that. If you haven't got the technology to do that, or if surely you're visiting people who haven't got the technology to do that, please just tell us and we can book you on in that system. You don't need to bring a ticket, we just need to know who's coming. And that has to be done by Friday lunchtime at the latest, okay? So we can be organised. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, welcome. Um, Nice to see you, to see you. Yeah, there's a few, you, you can talk, it's okay, just quietly, don't shout, you know. What do points make? And prizes, the American in the room is thinking, what are you going on about, Johnny? These are English catchphrases, Jackie. Um, but yeah, catchphrases, you, you might want to think of ones yourself, you know, I can think of sort of, oh, shut that door, that was Larry Grayson, wasn't it? Or John Inman, I'm free, okay, very similar demographic there. Um, Mine is probably just today. You've heard the little today rap that's been made of me or mentioned in Biscoff or I have a chemistry degree. There you go, there's my catchphrases for you. Um, Another one might be better from the Bible if I said, give thanks to the Lord our God and King. There's a bit of mum with it. His love endures forever. Or I could say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We're getting very liturgical a little bit there, aren't we, Jeff? A little bit, maybe. But uh, I want to just say this. At the Keswick Convention, those of you who used to go to the Keswick Convention and camp, I've noticed I'm not in the middle. There we go. That's better. I'll get into trouble. But uh, the Keswick Convention, there was a phrase that hung above the stage every single year. And it was a phrase that was in the Bible, it's in the New Testament, it was written in a letter by Paul, who wrote the letter to Timothy that we're looking at. And it was this, all one in Christ Jesus. So that was the phrase from uh, from the Keswick Convention that was always seen, it's taken from Galatians. And I want to start off with that catchphrase because it's really important when we look at the rest of the Bible, because we've got to recognise There's a thing called hermeneutics, not Herman's Hermits, for those of you who are of a certain age. Hermeneutics, where there's three boxes, if you imagine. One where the box is always relevant, so do not murder. is pretty consistent throughout the whole Bible, I think you'd agree. It even goes on to say, do not even think about murdering somebody. So, you know, anyone who's actually had those thoughts this week, confess and repent. But actually, that Galatians verse says this, but hermeneutics, sorry, (laughs) 
No, it's not in my notes, that's why I've gone off. A box that says it's always relevant. A box that says it's relevant in certain situations and a box that says it's relevant to that culture in that place at that time and that's it. So we've got to recognise as we look at the Bible, we aren't Greek. Any Greeks in here today? No? Any Greeks watching? Maybe, who knows? Any, any Jews in here today? Any Hebrew experts? No. The Bible was written in Greek for a certain group of people. So whenever we read the Bible, we have got to look at it through their eyes. Because actually when we look at it through our 21st century eyes, we can get it wrong. We can get it wrong. Galatians 3 verse 28 is where the catchphrase appears. And it says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the context. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I want to stress this catchphrase at the beginning of today's talk because actually I believe context is key. Um, Paul's teaching to the church as a whole was regularly, we are all one. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And here he particularly says, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no division. There is no separation. We're all one. Other letters talk about one body, many parts, different roles, different duties, different things. But clearly, as we look through the entire Bible, there were women leading and teaching. There are people mentioned. Priscilla and Aquila were Paul's mentors, and Priscilla was mentioned first. That's very significant, because when you were mentioned first, you were the most important one. So Priscilla, the lady in that partnership, was the most important mentor to Paul. Significant. And it's taken a long time for the church to actually get where Jesus himself wanted it to be. I think you'll agree. You know, it's not too long ago that Christians and church people would have had slaves and servants. And actually, it's not that long ago that as a culture and as a society, we wouldn't allow women to vote. But now we have those equality situations. Neither slave nor free. Culture has needed to change. And there is still modern day slavery occurring today. But actually, God doesn't want slaves and free. He wants us to be all one in Christ Jesus, to be part of his family. And sometimes we contribute to that modern day slavery without realising. The reason I start with this rumbling on is because chapter 2 of 1 Timothy is the hardest chapter and possibly contains the hardest verse in the whole Bible to translate accurately. That's not me speaking. I have had to dig into my notes from Cape and Ray Bible College where Rob Whittaker, the principal, spent three weeks lecturing just on this chapter. So I can't afford three weeks this morning because you'll have to be gone by 12 o'clock and people will switch off. But I want to stress that we're going to deal with the elephant in the room of today's passage. I don't mean that there's somebody put on a lot of weight during lockdown, and, but the elephant in the room is some of the verses that we don't like to look at sometimes. But I want to say to you this morning that 1 Timothy chapter 2 has been misused and mistranslated and misapplied. And that's not me speaking. That's the voice of some experts. I've got 30-ish minutes this morning to try and cover it So fasten your seatbelts. I'm not going to be quite as funny as normal, maybe. You might say I'm not normally funny anyway. That's fine. But actually, I think it's really important that we look at what God and what Paul was saying to the church because our our series is on building up the church. 
our series is on what are we doing to build up the church. The letter was written particularly to the leader, Timothy. If I read a letter out today that I wrote to Roz 26, 7, 8 years ago, it might say things like this. I love your curly permed hair. You know, she didn't. And I said those things to encourage her. You know, it wasn't the best haircut she'd had, but it was nice. I didn't mind it. I love your curly permed hair and floral leggings. They seem to make a comeback, but she's not wearing them anymore. It wouldn't make a lot of sense in the context. I could have talked to my fondness for Meg, which you'd be thinking, hold on a second, is there another woman in this situation? But actually, no, it was her dog who is no longer with us. And so all three of those things were relevant at the time, but actually they're not relevant today because Ros hasn't got a curly perm. She, hasn't, she doesn't wear floral leggings ever, I don't think. And also she hasn't got a dog called Meg. So as we read 1 Timothy, the whole letter, remember it was written to a particular person at a particular time and for a particular purpose. We're going to start with the second half of chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read from chapter 2, starting at verse 9. And it says this. Remember, we are all one in Christ Jesus, okay? I also, we'll come back to that, want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles. Sorry, Ros, you can't have that curly perm. Or gold, or pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. You might sit there already and think, wow, this is a bit harsh. This is a bit controversial. Paul's telling Timothy he's got to tell the women what to wear, what they can and can't wear. I can remember taking the young people to Keswick Convention and the older ones had a session where the lads got together and shared the things they found really difficult at church and really distracting. And the girls got together and shared the things that were really difficult and distracting for them. And the girls came back absolutely enraged. And it was because the lads said, look, girls, we we do struggle when you wear the strappy vest tops in church. It's a real distraction and we really struggle with it. And they were like, how dare they tell us we can't wear strappy vest tops? How dare, there's nothing, God looks on the inside, you know? But actually, how dare we be told what to dress? But the lads were just being honest. This verse needs some context. Ephesus was the home of the temple of Diana. Diana was the goddess of love. What was the way to worship the goddess of love? Well, you went in and there were hundreds of temple prostitutes. I have told Ros, I googled some of this, so if she looks at my history, that's why. Um, There were hundreds of temple prostitutes And the way to worship Diana would you would pay your money to the temple and you would worship the goddess of love by using the temple prostitute. That was how it happened. That was how it worked in Ephesus. And descriptions have been found of the women who were the temple prostitutes. Often the women would give themselves for two years in the service at the temple. They would be there for two years to be used in the service of the goddess Diana. Horrendous, yeah? Horrendous. But let's match what Paul is saying here with the description of those temple prostitutes. Paul isn't saying, I'm dictating to you what you can and can't wear. He is saying, don't let anyone come into your church and think that the women there are to be used. Don't let anyone come into your church and think that the women there are prostitutes. We want people to see something different. What is the message? Not about what they wear. It's saying the church needs to be different. 
It's saying that we need to be clothed, not with sexuality, not with all those things, but the way we express our love and worship for our God is with kindness and goodness and service of a different kind. That makes sense, doesn't it? That makes sense to what Paul's writing. He's saying, don't let people come into the church and see somebody that's going to be used in a wrong way. Don't draw attention to you, but point to God. You know, I grew up in a church where this chapter was very much applied in a very strict way, and it actually became a competition for who had the nicest and biggest and best hat, because actually that was how it was. It wasn't about drawing attention to us, but it was about drawing attention to the God that we love. And how do we do that? By clothing ourselves with kindness, by clothing ourselves with compassion, by clothing ourselves with goodness. Paul is saying, Timothy, as the leader, you need to get this right in the church. Don't let false things come in. Don't let the things from the outside come in and distract. It's not sexist, but it makes sense. I think you'll agree. Maybe today the warning would be different. But at this time and in this place and for this purpose, Paul wants Timothy to lead the women in the church to a better way and not to be like the cult of Diana. Let's carry on. Verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Here's a controversial one again, isn't it? I don't know whether I'm going to get through all this this morning. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Paul seems like he's really got it in for the women, doesn't he? He feels like he's really laying it in for you ladies today. But he's writing to the leader for a particular purpose, for a particular reason. Any of you ever been to a synagogue? An active synagogue? My dad and my brother went... uh, to a bar mitzvah in Manchester because my brother's best friend growing up was a Jewish lad. And so they went to the bar mitzvah, but obviously they weren't Jews. So they had to sit in the balcony upstairs. They weren't allowed in the main body of the church. They weren't allowed to be sat with the men. So they sat in the balcony with the women. This was in 1980-something probably. But my dad said it was a nightmare. An absolute nightmare. Why? Because the men were in the service downstairs watching and listening and the ladies spent the entire time talking, entire time chatting about what was going on in life, having a little bit of a gossip, having a little bit of a conversation and paying zero attention hardly to what was going on in the body of the church. So maybe... We need to realise, as Paul says this, that women in Jewish culture and women in culture of these days were seen as unimportant, were seen as unreliable, and were very much, most would be uneducated. Most of them would never have learned from a rabbi or a teacher. Most of them had never been in any form of education. How did Jesus treat the women that he met? I believe he treated them very differently to that. In fact, you could say that women were the first evangelists because they were the ones that came and said to the men, he is risen. They preached the first gospel message on that Easter Sunday. He has risen. And what was the disciples, the male disciples' reaction? Can't trust them. Why? Because the women weren't seen as reliable. That's not the case today, is it? We have women at university. We have women in important roles. Maybe not as many as we should have. But they were encouraged by Jesus to sit at his feet. 
They were encouraged by Jesus to sit at the rabbi's feet because he was the rabbi. They were encouraged by Jesus to join with the rest of the disciples and the women were praised for their worship at times when the men got it wrong. The message version says this, they should study and be quiet and obedient along with everybody else. In other words, it's time for you to start learning. It's time for you to be educated just like the men. It's time for you to pay attention to what God is saying. You are no longer second-class citizens. You are no longer unimportant, unreliable. You need to be part of this. You need to learn at the same time. You need to go along because we're all one in Christ Jesus. No more division. No more division of who's important and who isn't. No more separation. Are you still with me on this? Paul is saying it's time for the women to be learning just like the men, to be obedient and to be quiet just like the men. It's time for the church to stand out for goodness and kindness in worship. But the way to do this starts with the heart and sometimes has to include our outward behaviours too, especially in this culture and the context. Now we come to the bit which has been described as the hardest and most difficult bit to interpret in the whole Bible. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. It says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Again, sounds pretty harsh. To our English ears, sounds pretty straightforward. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. How long have I got left? Oh dear me, this is a tough one this morning. And I'm sorry if it's, you know, it's very, this is very theological today, but it's really important that we recognise that God is a consistent God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can't all be one in Christ Jesus if one half of that is saying, actually, no, you're not important. No, you need to shut up. No, you can't get involved. That can't be right. Doesn't tie up with the rest of Scripture. So why is it hard to understand this part of Scripture? Because there's one word in there that we read as authority. Now, you would think of authority, you think of perhaps head teachers, maybe police, people who are in power, And so maybe as our English ears hear that, we think, well, a woman can't be in charge then. That's what Paul's saying. A woman can't be the boss. A woman can't lead. A woman can't be in charge. But actually, the word that is used here for authority is only used once in the entire Bible. Wherever else it talks about authority and leadership, it's a very different word. But the word that is used here in the Greek is the word authentio. It is not used anywhere else. And in fact, they've had to go digging and researching for where that word is used to understand what it means. It occurred outside of scripture in Greek legal documents from around 283 BC to 500 AD. It was used in a very particular way. And in every document that it's used, it has a very specific meaning. And it means this, it's where a crime has been committed, usually murder, and it usually involves sexual allure to achieve that murder. In other words, a woman uses her sexuality 
to lead a man to his death. That's what the word means. It literally means one who kills themselves or another with their own hands. Authentio. That puts a different spin on things a little bit, doesn't it? He's saying, don't let the women use their sexuality to control you. Don't let the women use their sexuality to manipulate the church. Don't let them lead people to be murdered spiritually. Don't bring spiritual death into the church because of the sexuality of the women. That then links up a bit with the temple again, doesn't it? It then links up a bit with the context and the purpose and the place. Paul is probably saying that men have abdicated their responsibilities, that they've let their responsibilities go in order, to, in, in order to help others learn. And they've allowed the women to start controlling the church and bring spiritual murder into the church because people are being led astray down a path that only leads to death and not life. Are you still with me? Are you still with me? I think this is really exciting because I, I can remember however many years ago it was I went to Cape and Ray hearing this and going, wow. This is incredible. Because whatever it means, authentio was a very specific word. And it would probably have triggered some thought in the believers at Ephesus. I wrote Ros a song when we were dating. I'm not going to sing it to you. But, you know, I was a bit soppy. And I wrote her a song. And the first line went like this. This, this feeling's amazing. I'm sure you'll agree. Now, that sounds really formal, doesn't it? That sounds a bit like, what's that? But I'm sure you'll agree was a phrase used by a DJ at the time that made both of us laugh for a certain reason. So when Ross hears that song, this feeling's amazing, I'm sure you'll agree. She remembers not just my feelings for her, but the, some of the things we laughed about at the time. And in, even in church, we have words that trigger things, don't we? You know, some people, if you said to them, you must be born again, we agree that that's biblical, but we have to explain what that means. It's a bit of jargon. We don't want to use Christian jargon. But sometimes there are things that we hear that make us recognise what it means because we have a context for it. Also, when Paul says, I do not permit, we think, well, that means never. I do not permit means Paul's saying it's never happening. But actually, again, this can be translated in two ways. It can be translated as, I do not permit ever. But actually, the grammar that's used here is actually more like, at this time, I do not permit. At this time, I do not permit. You know, if the women in, in this church at Ephesus have spent all their life not learning from the truth, not hearing God's voice and not studying and not knowing what it's all about, then if they start teaching, all sorts of false things will creep in, won't they? If, they're, if they've been saved from this prostitution in the temple, all sorts of false teaching will come into God's church. And Paul is saying, at this moment in time, they need to learn along with the men. They need to sit and learn. It's like now. We would let people share their testimony in church in this way but actually, we wouldn't let them teach in this way until we'd seen a bit more fruit and a little bit more evidence that they were learning and growing. It's the same principle. You're still with me? You're still with me? You're still with me, Barry? Good lad. Okay. Because there's a little bit more. In Ephesus at the time, 
it's been found that there was a group of very prominent women who started a cult just for women. And actually, they were trying to infiltrate the church. They were trying to lead people astray. They were trying to recruit women from within the church. And they were trying to stop the church from being the truth of God. This group of women probably felt they'd been oppressed all this time and wanted to break free. So they were starting this thing themselves. However, they started to change the theology of Jesus. Their mission statement, if you like, was God is a woman. That's what they believed. That's what they were teaching. God is a woman. Not only that, they were teaching that women were created first, that Eve was made before Adam. That then ties in with the last part of the chapter, doesn't it, where it says for Adam was created first. They were teaching that Adam was the one at fault and it was no fault of the woman. They were teaching all of these things in their cult. Not only that, this God they said was female had a name. Guess what the name of that God was? Authentio. Wow. Now, does that start to make a little bit more sense of that passage? Because actually the grammar, the language, and all of those things then start to tie up. It also makes sense of the next statement about Adam and Eve, but also that women are saved by childbearing. Does that make sense to anywhere else in the Bible? that women are saved by childbearing? Are godly women sometimes hurt, even die in the process of childbearing? Yes, they are. Does it mean they'll be saved because of that? No, it doesn't. Verse 15 in the Greek says this, but she, singular, will be saved if they, plural, continue in faith. That's one of the things it says. Saved despite the curse that was put on Eve. They would be saved despite the curse. They were saved if they continued in faith. So hopefully that's clear as mud. (laughs) Because actually we are saved by childbearing, aren't we? Because Mary bore Jesus. And as a result of that child being born, we are all saved if we take the time to accept him. And we are all one in Christ Jesus. So when I look at this end of Timothy that for years has been used in very different ways, actually when we do a little bit of digging and research and actually we look at people who have spent lives doing that, it starts to make a little bit more sense to the culture, to the context and to the place. Paul's catchphrase, all one in Christ Jesus, neither male nor female, but all one. Yes, sometimes there are very different roles to be had. And sometimes there are things that that women can't do that men can do and vice versa. But actually, the culture of slavery has taken a long time to get out of the church, hasn't it? So maybe the culture of the women's situation in church has also taken longer because they were seen as unreliable. So today, I'm going to finish with what the church can build right now. I've dealt with the elephant in the room, I hope, and I hope it's made some sense. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I know that Rob Whitaker at Cape and Ray Bible College, the principal, went through three weeks where he told us every possibility that that verse or that chapter could mean. And he said, I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but actually he said, it will be very obvious which one I believe to be true. And so I've shared the one that was very obvious because it makes sense of not just one part of it, 
but all the verses that are there. And it makes sense with the rest of the Bible. Deborah was a prophetess. She was a leader. Priscilla taught Paul. Mary and Martha were very significant people in Jesus' life and were encouraged to sit at his feet. So actually, when we see a verse, we've got to say, is that consistent? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's finish this morning by looking, there's my catchphrase this morning, let's finish by looking at the first eight verses with what the church can build right now today. So you ready? Very quick. First eight verses, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Paul says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? That we're all one in Christ Jesus, that we're all one in him. For there is one God, that's the beginning of the, the Shema, there is one God prayed every day by the Jewish people. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I'm sorry if today's felt a bit like a lecture in a theological seminary, but I'm going to quickly go through these eight verses to say this. There are four different types of prayer that we need to build up the church. Paul says to Timothy, you need to use all of them. Don't just focus on one. We need to petition. We need to pray. We need to be intercessors. And we need to be giving thanks. All four things. I'm not going to go into detail because if you want to, there's a whole series on Let Us Pray which covered some of these things not so long ago. We need to practice thanksgiving. We need to practice prayer. That covers everything, really. We need to practice intercession. That's standing in the gap for other people. And we need to practice petitions. That's where we ask God and we say, God, we need to change. We need to see change. Paul says to build the church, we need to pray in all ways and for all people. That's hard, isn't it? For kings and those in authority. Have you prayed for Boris this week? Mm. Paul says to Timothy, to build the church, we need to pray for kings and the authorities. Maybe for Donald Trump, if you pray for Donald Trump this week, will you be willing, if you're a Donald Trump fan, to pray for Joe Biden? Because Paul says that we need to pray for those in power and in authority Why? So that we can live in peace. So that we can be in peace. Have you prayed for the town council this week? The decisions they're making? Have you prayed for your leadership team of this church this week? Have you prayed for me? Not that I'm more important, but obviously there's a lot of responsibility and sometimes it can be quite overwhelming. Have you prayed for our leaders? Why? Because our prayers make a difference to the world we live in. Do we believe that? Yeah. Because we've seen it. Our prayers make a difference. 
Also, it pleases God and it fulfills our purpose. It finishes that first half with an instruction to men. You women, you thought you were getting all the flack this morning because of the bit that was finished. But it finishes with an instruction to men. And again, this shows the misinterpretation of things because often the same churches or the same people who won't let women be involved in that way wouldn't let men raise holy hands to pray. So they can't have it both ways because Paul exhorts Timothy and says, we need to pray without dispute. Men, stop raising your fists against each other and raise your open arms to Jesus. Stop with the fighting. Stop with the arguing. So what's going to build the church? Prayer. Four types of prayer. Prayer for the people we don't really like. Prayer without fighting and without falling out. Prayer without argument. And what else? For us to all be one in Christ Jesus. To be united as people for a purpose. To see Christ lifted high. Verse five, there is one God and one mediator. The Jewish nation pray the Shema for there is one God. Paul adds, but there's also one mediator that brings man close to God, Jesus. And who we all want in? Christ Jesus. This morning, I'm sorry if you felt it's a bit over your head. I'm sorry if it's been a little bit different, but I felt it was really important to get down to the bare bones of what Paul was saying without just flipping over it or without skimming. So I want to encourage you, as you go through this week, that we know the one who gave himself to pay the ransom for all. As church, we know Jesus, the man who came to die, the one who was born and is born to save. Let us all be one in our church, in our church worldwide. All one in Christ Jesus. Can't just be all one. We're not like the four musketeers, all for one and one for all, but all one in Christ Jesus. I've gone on a little bit long today, but let us know that it's for this purpose that we pray and this purpose we press on. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And I pray, Lord, that as we go about our week this week, we will continue to study this chapter, that we won't just say, well, okay, Johnny's told me this and that's the fact. But Father God, that we will look at what you are trying to say to us, but that we will focus our lives on prayer, that we will come before you as people and that we will put arguments aside, that we will put disputes aside and instead of raising fists to each other, let's raise our arms to heaven and say, Jesus, here I am. I want to be united in Christ because the one that was born has saved us. Father, help us not to bring uh, falsehoods in, but Father, help us to know that you have changed us from the inside out and help our outward beings to be clothed in kindness, in goodness, in righteousness. Father, for anyone who's watching this morning who doesn't know you or who's gone, what have I come to? I pray, Lord, that they will know that simple truth that Jesus loves them and that because Jesus loves them, he died for them so that we can be saved and united in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.